0: Everybody and welcome to the Myo Minds podcast. I'm your host, George, and here at Myo Minds, we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. just before we get started i want to remind you that here on the my minds podcast we do often talk about eating disorders body dysmorphia exercise addiction suicide and other potentially triggering topics usually in the description below i will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode that being said i do hope you enjoy this but please do be careful hello everybody and welcome back to the my minds podcast as always i am your host george and today i have a very special episode of the Mind wines podcast i'm here with the edgy crew um, i'm here with professor jerome breen jerome how are you
1: i'm great nice to be on
0: i'm glad i'm glad you're on and i'm excited to this is a topic that i i think this is potentially the least i've known about a topic that we've that has come onto the podcast so you're gonna have to bear with me um i, I this isn't something i know massively about um but We'll we'll get there. So let's begin with the basics. We're here to talk about Edgy, Jerome. What
1: is Edgy,
0: and what what was it that Edgy does?
1: So Edgy is called is the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative, Um, and we're a a UK project, um, but there are branches of Edgy all around the world. So we're actually part of a very large collaborative network. What we're trying to do is understand the genetic causes of all eating disorders. We're primarily focused on um, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, but we also are open to studies of uh, other eating disorders that are more rare and unusual. Mm. Um, What What we don't, and essentially genetics of eating disorders has been a neglected area, but actually as a set of disorders, they're actually reasonably um, highly genetic. So about 50 to 60% of the risk of developing an eating disorder is due to genetic factors on average.
0: Wow. That's, That's a really high percentage.
1: Yeah. It's actually not that unusual to have that sort of heritability. It's roughly the same sort of heritability as uh, type 2 diabetes or, or similar uh, illnesses. Um, but eating disorders are actually more heritable than some other things for, for which I think the basis of their genetics is, is, is um, kind of more accepted in the general the general in the you know general public view um so i think things things like osteoarthritis or other other some other physical disorders are, ac- are actually less heritable mm. than than eating disorders are um, so
0: that's, that's really interesting because I, even even myself who's someone who kind of you know, works in mental health and works in eating disorders eating disorders specifically and i'm quite in touch with the kind of um within that side of you know Um, things even i i feel um it doesn't yeah it doesn't kind of make sense to me that that biological things would would impact something that's like psychological it almost it almost just even though i know that that's the case it almost doesn't quite compute um as much as it would with like it kind of makes sense that diabetes or osteoporosis and things like that would be affected by your genes but Mm -hmm. mental health it doesn't seem to to quite link in my in my head
1: Yes, but I, I suppose the the basic I think I think we, we can get a bit disconnected from what actual brain processes are. So I mean they're they're underlain by this by basically the function of the cells in your in your brain. So your the neurons in your brain and the other cells. Um, in terms, you know, and I guess what makes what make what makes psychiatry difficult and also Fascinating is that it's it's the I think people have called you know thought and action kind of emergent mm-hmm. phenomenon phenomena from how how neurons react to stimuli, but uh, but really actually um, if you actually consider it, so our psychiatric symptoms and behaviour are actually not that much more complex than the in, in their biochemical terms than the actual s- symptoms of a physical disorder. Uh, which can actually be actually one, you know things like arthritis or things like diabetes can be very complex, even mm. though, even though they might not lie in the brain. Um, I'm not sure if they, if that if that if that gets gets to the gets the answer answers your point, but actually I Maybe mean, the other way to, to say this is that psychiatric disorders as a group of disorders are just as highly heritable as any other uh, group of disorders across medicine. In fact, they might be even be slightly more heritable. But I think one of the things that we do see in psychiatry is that, there, is that it is the most, they do have the most complex genetics. Mm. So instead of there being Uh, four or five genes, four or five genetic variants that account for most of the risk, Mm. like you might see in some neurological disorders, for example. Um, In in mental health disorders, we see that there are probably thousands of genetic variants that are involved, and risk is very quantitative. So everyone has a little bit of risk, and some people have more, some people have less. And it, it's one of the factors, combined with environment, then, that influences whether someone someone develops symptoms and then gets a diagnosis. Um, but yeah, we don't think of genetics acting on it on its own. Um, no, yeah. And then another aspect I think in eating disorders is, let's say, someone has some of our genetic work in. Anorexia nervosa indicates that there might be some role for metabolism, or some sort of defects in metabolism, mm-hmm. in in that disorder. And of course, we know from studies of um, we know from studi- f- from yeah we know from some studies of obesity and things like that. For example, there are these single gene forms of obesity and what they result in is that there's a there's a sort of biochemical problem and then that manifests in very complex behavior ultimately and i think of eating disorders are somewhat similar to that right so there's both there's a psychiatric risk and there's a there's a metabolic risk perhaps they're genetic and then they both however can result in behavior ultimately
0: Mm.
1: because there's a sort of push in one direction towards maladaptive behavior associated with eating and food, perhaps. Um, yeah. So, but so it's like the, the actual, the, the,
0: the genes themselves that you're highlighting, they they can almost have, they almost are the, the, they start the ball rolling or they have that kind of knock-on effect where you know, they cause something to happen, whether it's a metabolic or even a um, you know, psych- psychiatry or psychological, um, you know, like the kind of neurons firing in a certain way or certain hormones coming out. And then that causes likely or more likely behaviours to happen that are going to
1: potentially turn into eating disorders. Is that, is that kind of layman's terms, what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. And like a, a, a simple model, which isn't necessarily actually, it's simply probably a bit more complex, what actually happens is that uh, let's say bio, biochemically someone might not respond well to hunger signals and for some individuals actually the hunger signals can then be rewarding Mm. um and then in in some individuals then they develop a kind of uh, maladaptive behavior around 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 hunger um and then and that that's that's one of the examples whereby you could think about how metabolism may. Is for some but for some individuals though the, the hunger signal is very strong and they, it will just overwhelm any any um any reward that they that they feel they feel
0: yeah so what what are your thoughts this is i'm going off i'm going off questions here but i knew i would um what are your thoughts on intuitive eating because that's all all about kind of you know recognizing your hunger levels and recognizing your society satiety cues and if if genes can affect that do you think maybe you know maybe it works well for some people but it wouldn't for others
1: i don't know i don't know much about intuitive intuitive
0: eating. well i the kind of the kind of the basic is that they 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 say that you need to kind of um, learn to recognize how hungry you are um, and then learn to recognize when you feel full and then kind of follow what your body's telling you but you know what you're saying here is that some people have those differently
1: have those feelings differently potentially Yes, but I mean, but I guess, I guess in, for most people that they just have to learn how to, they have to learn a healthy set of behaviors around the signals their body is giving them. Maybe that's a better, maybe that's a better way to think about it. Yeah. So, so they, they, they can learn the behavior that means that they still have this, this signal, but then they know what to do about it. Mm. And then, um, or they, they know how not to, not to sort of get, so to, to treat it as, you know, they know the behavior that, that will treat this, treat them, that will prevent them from developing another episode. Mm, yeah,
0: that's, that's, um, yeah I, I, suppose, I suppose, yeah, everyone kind of, you feel that hunger cue however you feel it, no matter like who you are or how different it is from other people. So it's just kind of getting to grips with how yours feels and what what it means to you rather than you know, how it might be different between each person that makes sense and um, we've kind, we're kind of going down this road of talking about genes but I kind of want to re- wind us back a little bit and I'm as again it's not a question that I wrote I kind of prepped for you and I apologize I'm, I'm just thinking all the other questions but how how is it exactly that this research works so you know what like how does the how are you finding out about genes
1: like 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 do you just okay. like yeah what, what do you do I'll tell you a little bit about what we do in EDG. Um, So, so in edgy in edgy EDG is an online recruitment project. So you, you can go to edgyuk.org. And we try to make the process very simple. So people people log in, create an account, but, but then they get a questionnaire. And that questionnaire then um, asks them about the symptoms of eating disorders, some demographic things, some risk factors. Um, and we use that questionnaire data then as along with the genetic data. So, the genetic data we get by sending people a saliva kit in the post and getting a saliva sample back and extracting DNA. From that DNA, we, we ultimately will get information on maybe 10 million genetic variants across the genome. Wow. And the methods that we use are. What what it's called a genome wide association study. Essentially, we're just looking to see which genetic variants are more or less frequent in cases with an eating disorder versus people without eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, and that enables us to kind of that sort of methodology enables us to go in without making any assumptions about what, what genes are involved, what biochemical pathways are involved. Um, and we can just let the data kind of tell us what what the what the herit because the heritability estimates that I gave you, 50-60%, they come from twin studies. They they just give us the overall figure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What, what we're trying to do in projects like EDGI is to try then figure out what the individual components of that heritability are. What are the specific genetic variants around the genome that are contributing? Mm-hmm. Um now, EDGIE is designed to be a large-scale study. So in the UK, we ultimately want to recruit around 10,000 people with an eating disorder. And there are other projects internationally. Um, you know, I, we're trying to, I think, ex- exceed maybe a total sample size of over 100,000 people in the next five years or so. Um, so, I mean, but you know, that's maybe also a side effect of our methodology. Our methodology is we don't like, we like to let the data tell us what's going on, but mm-hmm. when we do that, we do lots of statistical tests. So we need we need to have a very large sample size to actually do things rigorously and to to rig to sort of robustly find these genetic variants.
0: Mm. So, so when when you have kind of um, you know found these genetic variants that seem to link to eating disorders. Um, how, how is understanding that going to affect eating disorder care?
1: That's a tough, that's a tough question. So I mean, the first thing to be said about care and eating disorders, right, is that there isn't enough of it. Um, and you know, just in so, just in some ways, you know, it, it is slightly slightly um, you know, it, yeah, compared to some other disorders that I've worked on, I'd say like schizophrenia or or other or other things you know that there's there's more there's less available to people with many eating disorders you know so for for example um people with binge eating disorder have had services close to them at state various stages during the pandemic um but also though the treatments that are available are very much based not on any sort of biology or knowledge about the sort of underlying genetic basis of the disorder. They're based on primarily sort of family and psychological therapies. Um, And that's only part of the picture. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of hoping that if we understand the biology behind... Eating disorders, that then we can go in and do maybe two or three things. So, so one of the goals of our research is to find the causes of eating disorders, to so identify specific proteins or that might be involved in in the etiology of anorexia or binge eating disorder or bulimia. If we can identify those proteins, then maybe it may be that people can design design drugs or therapy or some other some other medications that can that can help fix that biochemical abnormality. Mm-hmm. So that's one approach, but that's a long-term approach. That takes 10, 20 years to come to fruition. The um, but the other the other th- approach though is that some of those proteins, for example, might then be good biomarkers to assess whether someone is actually ill or not. And ultimately, I guess what we would like to do is let's say do something like replace the use of BMI, for example, with the use of more precise biochemical measurements to tell to tell whether or not someone is actually is actually ill um, and meets clinical threshold for care. Um, and, and yeah, and these biomarkers could be used. Let's say with a combination of a kind of a, an assessment of someone's genetic risk, plus the biomarkers, um, predicting that they're about to have an, an, or they are an episode or about to have an episode, and then getting getting care to people more quickly. Um, that's kind of where we would like we would like to go. But but of course, there's still a lot of work though to to do that. we we've got some evidence in anorexia now that that. There might be specific proteins involved, but we need to get the kind of the projects done where we monitor these biomarkers in large numbers of patients to see whether they have protective or whether they have predictive ability for mm. uh, for patients in, in sort of predicting relapse, for example, because relapse is, the, is one of the key targets to, if we can prevent relapse we can prevent many of the bad consequences of these disorders so so you've, you've you've found
0: some evidence regarding anorexia you're saying can you tell me a bit more about that
1: what what's been what's been found and yeah so so a couple of years ago we published um, a very large study um, to the so I co-chair the, the psychiatric genomics consortium eating disorders group with my collaborator Cindy Bulick um, and we published a study on 17,000 or so cases of anorexia nervosa, and we compared that to a larger group of controls. We identified eight genetic variants associated with, with anorexia. Um, what, was, what was interesting, more interesting, though, was perhaps those specific variants, which, which you know gave us interesting genes was that we were able to use another methodology which is called genetic correlations to look at how similar the molecular genetics of anorexia are to the genet- genetics of other disorders and traits. And what we found is that uh, anorexia had this two, has this, these two sides. So it has strong relationships with psychiatric Disorders and traits, like you might expect. So, uh, for example, OCD or depression. But it also then had strong um, inverse relationships with things, with metabolic factors. So Roughly speaking, I think anorexia looked like a, almost like the mirror image of type two diabetes in terms of its metabolic signatures. Oh wow! So it had it, it had genetic correlations with low BMI, with high levels of good cholesterol, with other, other things. Um, and, I, and I guess the, the thing about genetic correlation methodology, right, is that it's it's not, we're looking at, so basically germline genetics, we're looking at these genetic variants that aren't changed by your environment, and, you um, and so they indicate some level of, possibly anyway, indicate some level of etiological relationship between these traits and, and anorexia. Mm. Um, but that study wasn't quite enough; wasn't quite large enough for us to make absolute, definitive causal conclusions. But we're currently doing a study where we're enlarging that number of cases to around twenty-six thousand cases. And I think with that data set, we should be able to to conduct other types of analyses to confirm the causal relationship between between um metabolism and, and anorexia and also the strength of the how strong that relationship is
0: mm. yeah it's it's interesting you say um it seems like a mirror image to to diabetes. it's kind of metabolic processes could you could you explain that a little bit more like what what that what do you mean exactly by the mirror image like what's the
1: what is it that's that's so different well let's say with um type 2 diabetes you you would see a strong genetic relationship with higher bmi with um some some hormones with genetics of things like body fat and and um and um I don't think you see the relationship. Yeah, you might see the relationship with some lip, blood lipids and things like that, blood fat, you know, the cholesterols and other things. But in 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 anorexia, it seems that people have this genetically almost have this favorable metabolic profile. But they also though, but they also though on average have an increased psychiatric risk profile. And, and it's possibly the combination of those two factors coming together that, that maybe characterizes the, Ill, the illness. So that mm. it's possible that someone could have this favorable metabolic profile without actually having the psychiatric risk. that maybe there would, nothing bad would happen, as it were. Or, yeah, well, maybe that's, that's probably too strong to say, but, but those people would probably not go on, be at very high risk of developing an eating disorder.
0: Interesting.
1: Okay, so what what is it?
0: Um, sorry, I keep I keep kind of quizzing you on this stuff, but I'm just yeah, I'm I'm interested in the you know, that this favorable metabolic kind of genetics. It, what 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 does that kind of incorporate? Like, what's what's the the
1: favorable part of that? Like, what is it? Well, I guess I guess it's if you want to say favorable, maybe favorable is making a judgment, but but basically it would it would be a set of a set of things which would mean that someone was more likely to maintain a non maintain a normal or low body weight um, and not be not be obese. That biochemically, that they would be less likely to have cardiac problems ultimately in life. Um, yeah, I, I guess those will be the those yeah. that would be the, the, what I would be referring to as metabolically uh, favorable. So like yeah, so your
0: metabolism is set up in a way that's kind of um, protective of of the more common like health issues, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So so if someone has has that favorability, but then also has these genes that seem to link to some kind of psychiatric or psychological issue, that seems to be the kind of the concoction that
1: is producing. Well, that's a suggestion from the data. Um. We need to kind of verify. We need to go and go and verify that in detail. But I mean, that seems to be this, that's it. That is what is suggested from the from the data.
0: Yeah, it's all speculative at the moment. It's just, um, but that's
1: kind of yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's speculative. It's probably more than speculative, but it's not proven. I think let's put it that way. Right? We strongly suspect. Okay. Okay. Strongly
0: suspect. I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as you've already kind of um, touched on this. A little bit but how do you see this research being implemented in the future so how, like you know what do you think what comes from it like what what's the what's the next steps actually yeah so what my two questions are what's the next steps and then also in like your wildest dreams like like i'm talking like star wars like i don't know like some kind of scanner or something that check people's brains like what what do you think could happen so first of all the realistic and second of
1: all star wars Okay. Um, so then, but, but basically, I mean, what we need to do next is we need to... Okay, so we're doing these large studies of, of anorexia, but we also need to do large studies of bulimia and binge eating disorder um, to see if they've got a, a different... I mean, we suspect, though, that they will have a differing relationship with these metabolic factors. Um, so... We need to, but, you know, they also have striking, fairly striking behaviors and other things associated with them that means that I would expect the genetics of those traits to be extremely interesting and informative. Um, And yeah, we have to let, we have to see what the data tells us about those, those disorders. But then if we get a kind of good understanding of those disorders, then basically maybe what we might be able to achieve then is is to systematically in, in, systematically address the biochemistry of patients, as well as their as well as their um, psychological symptoms. Mm. Um, and I and I think maybe it calls for more integrated care. So the so we you know okay of of course first we need proper funding for, for eating disorder teams, and we need to get more. Um, more psychiatrists more psychologists other people working in eating disorder services but then also those services maybe could be expanded to also get people who are endocrinologists involved or other things to help address some of the other issues that, that participants or that, that patients have so, um, yeah, so it,
0: could, it could get to the point where, where in eating disorder services not only are we kind of you know um, helping them eat whatever they need to eat and, and kind of addressing psychological through therapy, et cetera, but also we could get someone in to kind of help, you know, manipulate their hormones or, you know, whatever it is that's seems to be kind of um, shown in these, in
1: the genes that you're, you're looking at. Yeah. And of course, those things aren't necessarily trivial, right. So, and, and not the least of which is that some patients when they're ill may not very, may, may not be very open to, to um to um you know someone coming in taking medication for example that would make them gain weight or, or other things like that right but yeah but i think we do need to we do ultimately need to get there because unlike a lot of psychiatric disorders right eating disorders have a clear link with physical health health and um and outcomes in eating disorders need to be improved so it's 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 kind of fairly. It seems fairly clear to me that that if if the if there's a strong physical and metabolic thing going on across eating disorders, then we we need to involve those parts of medicine that are currently not not uh, not involved in the care of those patients. Mm. Right. Um, and then we we could we could improve outcomes. And that's different. What we see we don't get the same types of signals in any any other psychiatry. any other other psychiatric disorders. I mean, some of the disorders like ADHD might have an increased risk of obesity, but that's it. That's basically it. Mm. Whereas um, whereas eating disorders have these specific signals that indicate that they're not just psychiatric disorders. Put it that way.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Um, And then in regards to the like perfect future like, and my the way i was imagining it the kind of stop my star wars version was when it when someone is born they take like a sample of their saliva and they put it on a big screen and it says they've got this percentage chance to get in this eating disorder they've got this percentage chance of doing this so they you need to do this this and this do you think something like that is ever possible
1: um people people do try to work on risk calculators i guess the the ultimate issue though about risk calculators is is how many false positives you get you get Mm. out of it so so i think i think that that okay so so i mean i prefer i prefer star trek to star wars but okay star trek if if you wanted to (laughs) (laughs) okay so so, uh, yeah so in um so, in more in more of a utopia type situation, I get I guess what you would what you might be able to say is that it's the same way that we can get blood sugar and and cholesterol checked at the GP, that the GP might have a device that would that would test um, that would be able to test a blood sample from um, someone presenting with with initial initial eating disorder symptoms and. Also be able to, and also that, but also that those GPs would have proper training and could screen people for eating disorders mm. when properly when they when they come to see them, and that then the results of the blood test and the GP screening could get people. I mean that that, that it. I mean, maybe that isn't maybe that isn't yeah maybe that's not utopia level of technology. Isn't that's just like what I, what I think that they should do. That's, that still sounds very cool though. It sounds yeah It sounds. <laughs> It is. It is very cool. I mean, but the thing is, that's that is achievable. Um, I think a lot of you know a lot of GPS will have actually a lot of people with different eating disorders on their books. They just don't realize that maybe twenty percent or thirty percent of people with severe obesity, will, you know, probably would would screen positive for binge eating disorder and and things like that. So um, if the, if um, if, you know, so basically, if you had, if you, yeah, so basically, Utopia would then would be uh, a device that you could screen people's blood samples with to give give some input on their level of risk. Uh, properly trained um, primary healthcare workforce then that that would be sensitive and screen people for eating disorders and and do partially ac- at least partially accurate diagnoses and get people into early treatment then. <clears throat> Excellent.
0: Excellent and and Spock will do it that's it's Star Trek not Star Wars uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so it, how obviously that's that that kind of level of utopia is maybe is maybe very far in the future but how long do you think kind of time scale wise do you think it will be before we get first of all we get the results that are required to put something in place and then how long until it's actually implemented, do you think?
1: Yeah. So I think I think our, in five years time, we'll probably be in a very good place in terms of our understanding of the genetics and biology of these disorders. But the real challenge though, will be translating that then into uh, new, new therapies, new diagnostics, Mm. That can get that can get used, um, but I'm but I'm hopeful that in the next couple of years they will start to do the large scale clinical studies in anorexia, and maybe in, and then and then that will build a base then to do the others to 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 roll out some sort of clinical clinically relevant testing.
0: Mm.
1: Um, ultimately. Um, I think like I said earlier, ultimately maybe if, if such te- if that type of testing could replace the use of of um, measures like BMI when assessing need, then you know that would be that would be one target to aim at.
0: Yeah, definitely. and that that sounds like a, a fantastic because mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you agree with me, but I think that BMI is isn't the, the most accurate of tools. Um, especially in kind of an eating disorder. For for me specifically as well. And you know, um my own minds, I, we, we work in kind of exercises. So people who go to the gym and people who are athletes, people who carry more muscle mass than usual. Yeah. So pe- you know, people, you know, I think um, I'm technically obese according to the, you know, the 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 BMI. And for someone who has, has experienced an eating disorder, that used to really kind of mess with my head because I was. I would be my, my kind of experience is maybe a little bit different because I was kind of muscularity oriented, disordered yeah. eating. So yeah. one part of me wanted to be bigger, but the other part was terrified. that My BMI said I was now obese. So, you know, that was, yeah. So yeah. coming up with something like this could be really good for that kind of situation.
1: Yeah. And it's, and it's precisely, it's precisely that, that, that actually the, um, the, um, I mean, there are all sorts of issues with, BMI as well, which is not the least of which is also that bone mineral density varies a lot between indiv- individuals and, you know, it, it's probably, it's, you know, it, it is, and BMI is a very kind of, very, you know, it's also just a very insensitive measure, you know, it, it doesn't actually make sense in this day and age when you can, when anybody can no, certainly when any clinical service could actually have a machine that costs maybe a couple of hundred pounds that can do very accurate measurements on an individual to actually be using to be actually using BMI as a proxy measure is just it's just it's, yeah anyway it's not good.
0: I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I, I search people all the time, but now I've got a professor who says it and I can I can prove I can always just say, oh, but go listen to that podcast, listen to that, that exact minute um so thank you for thank you for saying that and all the people who are told to come and listen to this podcast hello it's me from the the past saying I got you um <laughs> uh, so kind of moving on moving on from there so um we've spoken all about this research and and how um you know, uh, how amazing it's going to kind of be when it comes out and the, all the kind of implications that can come from it and um, all the research that's going in at the moment but the people who are listening to this podcast who also are really excited and um also kind of want to get involved and maybe people who have experienced an eating disorder who want to help out how can people get involved and how how can people help out
1: so uh, if you want to join edgy um so if you think so if you've if you've had an eating disorder diagnosis or you think you might have had an eating disorder then you can go to edgyuk.org, and the process is fairly simple and standard. You log, you create an account, and you get a login and password for the website. You then can complete a questionnaire on the website. We just check then if you're eligible for the study, and if you are, then we'll send you, we'll send you a saliva kit in the post. Um, so the. I guess the things to mention about that then the saliva kit is, is you know it's probably the, the most the most yucky part of the process, but it's just you know basically you just have to dribble into a tube a little bit, um, and just send it send it back to us. All of the your data then is is handled securely, so the um, essentially in the lab you'll only exist as a coded number mm-hmm. and. Only the people directly involved with the recruitment will have access to the, um, to your name and address, for example, and things like that. Anybody else who's working with the data from the project will only get access to um, your answers to questions on the questionnaire and all, after after all the personal data has been, your, your name, address, et cetera, all, all, of that, and all of that has been stripped out of the, the data, the data. The data set. Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent.
1: Excellent. So yeah,
0: people um who are listening, I'll put a link to the website in the description below. So you just go onto there and then you can I went on the website before recording this podcast just to kind of double check in. It is very, very simple. Um so everyone kind of go to it straight away. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna sign up because I haven't yet. I'm gonna sign up as soon as we finish this pod. Um, so do like me, go and sign up. Um, so we are coming to near to the end of the podcast, and for people who have listened to the last episode of the podcast, you will know that there is a new segment called the Devil's Advocate, and I am yet to record the the little doohickey. Maybe I have. If if I have, I'm going to put it here. It's the Devil's Advocate. <laughs> There we go. Um, So the devil's advocate is a new question that I've brought in and there are two rules to the devil's advocate question. The first rule is I'm not allowed to agree with the tone of the question and the second rule is I have to feel a bit uncomfortable when I ask it because it's a bit controversial and a, a bit yeah feels uncomfortable. So today's devil's advocate is isn't it more important that we focus on research around care who cares about genes?
1: I, so I, I agree that we need to do research about care, but the f- trouble is that the care that people get isn't, unfortunately, good enough to prevent many people developing lifelong chronic illnesses. Um, what we're trying to do here is to use the tools of genetics to provide additional information ultimately to clinicians to deliver better care. Mm. Um, and I think it's also about, it's also about parity. So uh, other disorders have quite a lot of molecular research ongoing in them. You know, for example, schizophrenia or depression or other things, but why don't eating disorders have the same level of, of uh, research? Um, you know when they're really just as heritable and in fact they might be more interesting biologically more tractable biologically than mm. than those other other disorders are um, mm. and so we hope to even up even up the as' it were, the playing field as it were for eating disorders as well fantastic great answer
0: um and yeah I, I think I agree with everything you said there and I definitely agree with we need to even up the playing field I think I think the if for a lot of um, mental health concerns, there um, there is that kind of stigma and stuff. But I, I do I do feel like, especially with I don't know if you saw, but um, there's a new initiative in the UK that's potentially coming out that's that's tracking people's exercise and, and diet um, And yeah. Yeah. I I feel like I almost feel like if someone had asked me before I'd re- before I read about that, if someone said to me, George. Um, what would if you were like an evil genius and you wanted to ruin eating like wanted to make eating disorders worse in the uk what would you do and i'd probably have come up with something like that
1: yeah i know it doesn't seem yeah it doesn't seem terribly do i mean I, I think the people doing that have i mean it's important just to you know to realize that people doing that have probably had good intentions but it does seem ill thought through from an eating disorder perspective. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, I think also though from an obesity perspective, a lot of the policies that have been talked about like calorie labeling and other stuff have been shown to not work. Yeah. (laughs) Basically the introduction of calorie labeling in the US or in other things has just been accompanied by an ongoing ongoing increase in in um, you know obesity levels so um, so ultimately I mean I think hopef- I mean hopefully though that they, they won't spend too much money on these things before they realize that they, they may be not terribly effective and then they will try to do things that are more more helpful and you know I'm a little bit more helpful that I'm a little bit more hopeful that um Taxes on, you know, high sugar food or other things like that would be more, are more appropriate and would be less damaging to people with, with eating disorders. Mm. Um, um, but, you know, we'll, but we'll see, it's, it's a very complex area. And of course, um, and it just requires a nuanced approach, but, a, but I think a large percentage, and I think also the other thing is that a large percentage of the people that they're trying to target will actually have an eating disorder. They'll have binge eating disorder, right? So so I I think hopefully the the government will realize that increasing funding for clinical services and increasing funding for research in binge eating disorder would actually help them address the most severely obese segment of the population. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: That and that's that's a really good perspective, actually. I I I haven't really thought about that. That, um, yeah, a lot of the the people who you know, would if if you know, like you say, I don't I don't want to I don't want it to come across that I'm just kind of attacking the people that are making the decisions because I understand that you know they're thinking about the obesity epidemic and they're you know they're just kind of you know that's clouding their vision so to speak and they're you know they're focusing mm-hmm. on that and they've just maybe passed over the whole even sort of thing or or you know whatever, um. But that's a really interesting perspective that actually, if we tackle certain varieties of eating disorders, we may kind of to, to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Um, and, you know, obviously it's going to be a bit more complicated than that. But, uh, you know, it's, it, seems, it seems like a more um, educated decision than let's just track everyone. And let's just label everything with calories because like you said it doesn't even especially the calorie labeling it doesn't even seem to work so it's a strange strange choice
1: yes well well i think hopefully but yeah but hopefully ultimately we can we can find a way to work together with people who want to you know achieve these public health goals to actually do stuff that's sensible Mm. and helps and helps people rather than you know, maybe not helping people and putting people at risk, right, so. Yeah. Exactly, exactly.
0: Um, well, Professor Breen, um, we have made it to the end of the podcast. I have three questions that I ask every guest on that are slightly unrelated from today's topic, but I ask everyone. So are you ready for the first question? Yes. Okay. Name a person... Real or fictional? Who inspires you?
1: Um, let me think. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. Well, fiction, fiction, fictionally, um, I guess as a kid, I quite, I quite like, I quite like Data from Star Trek, but okay, but I think maybe that's not, maybe that's not really that relevant. Um, (laughs) A scientist who. Who, um, who I like to, you know, I like um, Marie Curie was quite an inspirational figure. Um, um, I think uh, her, you know, it's yeah. I, I think I, I do find sort of the, the Nobel Prize winning physicists thought to be very entertaining to to read about as well, right? They're they're really a striking group, of, striking group of people who. <laughs> playing with plutonium and radium and, and various other things you know have, you know having um doing very dangerous experiments um it almost yeah. seems like a cartoon doesn't it when you
0: when you read into the way the things that went on with those people like they just it doesn't seem real like i feel like it just it seems a bit too mad for it to be a, a real thing that happened yes yeah <laughs> um so the second question, of the final three, is a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking
1: back, you know good things came from it. Hmm. Yeah. So as part of my so I, I initially wanted to become a chemical engineer and I was doing a degree course where I, I could do a sandwich year. Mm-hmm. So I ended up ended up working in a large chemical company um and um i worked with them for nine months and i I could say it was basically the the kind of worst job i've ever had in my entire life you know i had to get up at basically 5 45 a.m every morning catch a six o'clock bus to the plant i would work work in the in in the in the lab there until about four o'clock and then take a bus home Um, it wasn't and then it was heavy, heavy industry. So the, this particular plant was uh, processing a bauxite ore into alumina powder. One of the one of the stages that is what people the first stage is what what people do to make al- aluminium. Okay. Um, and it was really heavy chemist, really heavy chemistry, and millions of you know thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of sodium hydroxide, concentrated sodium hydroxide, being used to to, to to digest not tens of tons of this orb. and um, after that experience, um, I, I definitely knew I did not want to be. Uh, <laughs> um, so that, that that's what drove me to to sort of uh, look at look at other things, and then I realized I like genetics. Why mm. I've ended up ended up doing doing oh, this nice. doing this um, doing this. Um, um, this career
0: that i'm in at the moment. yeah and that that's really cool so how, how old were you when you made that kind of shift in from what you wanted to become a cool engineer and um
1: so i went to i went to university relatively it's not that young for Ireland. i went to went to university about a year ahead of time so i went to university when i was 16 i but it's about a year ahead of time in ireland so it's you go a bit, a little bit younger in ireland and um i guess I, when i was when i was 20 I kind of made the decision I didn't want to divert down to doing genetics
0: yeah well that but i i think I think that's really um i think that's nice from from my perspective anyway and i'm sure for a lot of other people people who go to university and they think that they have to have sorted out they know exactly what they want to do and that's the only way they're going to be successful is if they decide when they're just starting uni exactly what they're going to do and they follow that all the way through but yeah, you're a very successful professor and you changed your mind whilst you know when you were 20 when you were in uni um, and you've you know i think that's that's really inspirational for people who you might feel a bit lost in their degree maybe or listening to this right now and they think I don't think I want to do
1: this, I want to do something else. Um so it's it's nice just to hear that. Yeah. And, and it's always the case that um that um you know I mean basically I can say as an employer what you basically want to have you want to have smart people work for you who have a variety of skills. So you should often people should often think about people often can actually go into other careers without actually have without actually having to do retraining. Mm. But they do they do have to have the confidence to apply for jobs. So but I think. But
0: anyway. That's yeah, that's brilliant. I really like that. And um I, I suppose I can talk to you I'll talk to you about it off podcast. But um you know I, I don't have any qualifications in psychology and I now work in uh I, I'm not I'm not supposed to connect myself with the institution, but quite a, a high level institution um in psychology. And you know that's because I you know took my skills and I've you know, pursued it and worked at it and you know kind of gone with my my passion. I changed my mind as well, um, so you know I'm obviously um, one day I will be a professor. That's my my dream, um, but uh, not yet. But I will be one day. Uh, so yeah, uh, and the final one, Jerome. The final question, the one we finish with, is
1: a phrase to live by um cock up not conspiracy cock up
0: not conspiracy
1: yeah so basically that when something when something goes wrong most often people are not out to get you there it's just it's just something went wrong (laughs) so basically but i think it's very important to bear in mind that a a lot of what we do is very difficult and things will go wrong um but it's always important to maintain a positive outlook.
0: Hmm. I really like that. I've not heard that before. Um, Cock-up, not conspiracy. That's really cool. I really like that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So, um, Jerome, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. I hope you enjoyed our talk.
1: Yes, I did. It was
0: a pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy we spoke to each other, and I'm glad I've, I've learnt that you're a Star Trek fan and you hate chemical engineering with a passion. Uh, (laughs) that's those the two things i'm taking away today um everyone listening at home as always thank you so much for making it through the podcast and i hope to see you at the next one bye thank you thank you so much for listening to that episode here at MyMinds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out MyMinds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.